Shalom, friends. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Access. This is Timothy, and I'm really happy to be studying through the scriptures with you today. Quick question. Have you ever been entrusted with a very important task? Have you ever experienced this huge weight or a burden of responsibility placed on your shoulders? If so, did you rise to the occasion? Were you anxious? Did you grumble? (laughs) You may have even wondered why you were entrusted with this huge responsibility in the first place. I remember my days working in the hospitality industry and my days slaving away in retail. I had a lot of different opportunities in all my workplaces. And I was usually the new kid, right? Um, But my supervisors and managers, they always seemed to entrust me with more responsibilities right away. And they gave me promotions, bestowing more authority on me. And I have to admit, I didn't always take those opportunities seriously. Being a person that suffers from anxiety myself, uh, these were not ideal situations for me. Before departing from those jobs, I would ask my employers what their reason was for trusting me in those positions. Some of the reasons that they gave me was that I was trainable, teachable, um, I worked as though no task was ever beneath me, and and that I didn't leave things half done. <laughs> Little did they know. Um, wow, what amazing feedback, right? Um, sadly, I felt like a fraud. I didn't think I was a very diligent worker, you know? And then I realized that they viewed me that way only in comparison with the other workers. So the bar of excellence, you know, it wasn't set very high. <laughs> no offense to any of my old coworkers that might be listening, but you know, it's true. <laughs> it was one thing for my employers to see the leadership potential in me, which was very humbling and encouraging to me. But to be honest, in my younger years, I didn't see myself as faithful in those workplaces. I mean, I held two or three jobs at any given time. But if I was truly as faithful as they believed I was, then why did I find it so easy to just walk away from my job and move on to the next one? You know, through the years, I've come across a number of people that work their tail off. They don't complain. They actually seem to love what they do. And even when they don't get that raise or promotion, you know, they still work diligently and faithfully. And these are honest, happy people with great integrity. And having had conversations with a few of these people, I I would ask them what their secret was to be able to stick it out no matter what and still be happy. I had a coffee convo once with one of these special people, and she pointed me to Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24. It says, Whatever work you do, put yourself into it, as those who are serving not merely other people but the Lord. Remember that as your reward, you will receive the inheritance from the Lord. You are slaving for the Lord, the Messiah. I've carried those words with me as a reminder ever since, and it has always kept me with a proper mindset and attitude of heart. And that's why I want to share that with you today. If you want to look it up in your own versions, it's Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Our study today is called Servant Faith. If you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all of our studies under the Files tab. Also visit our website at connectionsministries.com. As we continue our study through Genesis, I recommend having a Bible handy so you could follow along. And I encourage you to take some time with your own Access Church communities and your small groups and review this study together. Now let's get started. Servant Faith. 
Today, my wife Beverly will be reading from Genesis chapter 24 and through to chapter 25, verse 18 from the Complete Jewish Bible. By now, Avraham was old, advanced in years, and Adonai had blessed Avraham in everything. Avraham said to the servant who had served him the longest, who was in charge of all he owned, Put your hand under my thigh, because I want you to swear by Adonai, God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not choose a wife for my son from among the women of the Canaanite, among whom I am living, but that you will go to my homeland, to my kinsmen, to choose a wife for my son Yitzchak. The servant replied, Suppose the woman isn't willing to follow me to this land. Must I then bring your son back to the land from which you came? Avraham said to him, See to it that you don't bring my son back there. Adonai, the God of heaven, who took me away from my father's house and away from the land I was born in, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your descendants. He will send his angel ahead of you, and you are to bring a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are released from your obligation under my oath. Just don't bring my son back there. The servant put his hand under the thigh of Avraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and all kinds of gifts from his master, got up and went to Aram Naharayim, to Nahor's city. Toward evening, when the women go out to draw water, he had the camels kneeled down outside the city by the well. He said, Adonai, God of my master Avraham, please let me succeed today and show your grace to my master Avraham. Here I am, standing by the spring, as the daughters of the townsfolk come out to draw water. I will say to one of the girls, Please lower your jug so that I can drink. If she answers, Yes, drink, and I will water your camels as well, then let her be the one you intend for your servant Yitzchak. This is how I will know that you have shown grace to my master. Before he had finished speaking, Rivka, the daughter of Betuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Avraham's brother, came out with her jug on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, never having had sexual relations with any man. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, "'Please give me a sip of water from your jug to drink.' "'Drink, my lord,' she replied, and immediately lowered her jug onto her arm and let him drink. When she was through letting him drink, she said, "'I will also draw water for your camels until they have drunk their fill.' She quickly emptied her jug into the trough, then ran again to the well to draw water, and kept on drawing water for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence, waiting to find out whether Adonai had made his trip successful or not. When the camels were done drinking, the man took a gold nose ring weighing one-fifth of an ounce and two gold bracelets weighing four ounces, and asked, "'Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night?' She answered, "'I am the daughter of Betuel, the son Milkabor to Nahor,' adding, "'We have plenty of straw and fodder, and room for staying overnight.' The man bowed his head and prostrated himself before Adonai. Then he said, "'Blessed be Adonai, God of my master Avraham,' who has not abandoned his faithful love for my master, because Adonai has guided me to the house of my master's kinsmen. The girl ran off and told her mother's household what had happened. Rivka had a brother named Laban. When he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists besides, and when he heard his sister Rivka's report of what the man had said to her, he ran out to the spring and found the man standing there by the camels. "'Come on in,' he said, "'you whom Adonai has blessed.' Why are you standing outside when I have made room in the house and prepared a place for the camels? So the man went inside, and while the camels were being unloaded and provided straw and fodder, water was brought for him to wash his feet and the feet of the men with him. But when a meal was set before him, he said, I won't eat until I say what I have to say. Laban said, Speak. He said, I am Avraham's servant. 
Adonai has greatly blessed my master so that he has grown wealthy. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves, camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore my master a son when she was old, and he has given him everything he has. My master made me swear, saying, You are not to choose a wife for my son from among the women of the Canaani, among whom I am living. Rather, you are to go to my father's house, to my kinsmen, to choose a wife for my son. I said to my master, Suppose the woman isn't willing to follow me. Avraham answered me, Adonai, in whose presence I live, will send his angel with you to make your trip successful, and you are to pick a wife for my son from my kinsmen in my father's house. This will release you from your obligation under my oath. But if, when you come to my kinsmen, they refuse to give her to you, this too will release you from my oath. So today I come to the spring and said, Adonai, God of my master Avraham, if you are causing my trip to succeed in its purpose, then here I am, standing by the spring. I will say to one of the girls coming out to draw water, Let me have a sip of water from your jug. If she answers, Yes, drink, and I will water your camels as well, then let her be the woman you intend for my master's son. And even before I had finished speaking to my heart, there came Rivka, going out with her jug on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water. When I said to her, Please, let me have a drink, she immediately lowered the jug from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will water your camels as well. So I drank, and she had the camels drink too. I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she answered, The daughter of Betuel, son of Nahor, whom Milka bore to him. Then I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists, bowed my head, prostrated myself before Adonai, and blessed Adonai, God of my master Avraham, for having led me in the right way to obtain my master's brother's granddaughter for his son. So now, if you people intend to show grace and truth to my master, tell me. But if not, tell me, so that I can turn elsewhere. Laban and Betuel replied, Since this comes from Adonai, we can't say anything to you either bad or good. Rivka is here in front of you. Take her and go. Let her be your master's son's wife, as Adonai has said. When Avraham's servant heard what they said, he prostrated himself on the ground to Adonai. Then the servant brought out silver and gold jewelry, together with clothing, and gave them to Rivka. He also gave valuable gifts to her brother and mother. He and his men then ate and drank and stayed the night. In the morning they got up, and he said, Send me off to my master. Her brother and mother said, Let the girl stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she will go. He answered them, Don't delay me, since Adonai has made my trip successful, but let me go back to my master. They said, We will call the girl and see what she says. They called Rivka and asked her, Will you go with this man? And she replied, I will. So they sent their sister Rivka away with her nurse, Avraham's servant, and his men. They blessed Rivka with these words, our sister, may you be the mother of millions, and may your descendants possess the cities of those who hate them. Then Rivka and her maids mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and went on his way. Meanwhile, Yitzchak, one evening after coming along the road from Beir Lahai Roy, he was living in the Negev, went out walking in the field, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rivka too looked up, and when she saw Yitzchak, she quickly dismounted the camel. She said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? When the servant replied, It's my master, she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Yitzchak everything he had done. Then Yitzchak brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rivka, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus was Yitzchak comforted for the loss of his mother.
Chapter 25 Avraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Yokshan, Medan, Midian, Yeshbak, and Shuak. Yokshan fathered Shiva and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Epha, Efer, Chanok, Avida, and Elda. All these were descendants of Keturah. Avraham gave everything he owned to Yitzchak, but to the sons of the concubines he made grants while he was still living and sent them off to the east, to the land of Kedem, away from Yitzchak, his son. This is how long Avraham lived, 175 years. Then Avraham breathed his last, dying at a ripe old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Yitzchak and Ishmael his sons buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Tzohar, the Hittite, by Mamre, the field which Avraham purchased from the sons of Het. Avraham was buried there with Sarah his wife. After Avraham died, God blessed Yitzchak his son, and Yitzchak lived near Beer Lachai Roy. Here is the genealogy of Yishmael, Avraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian woman bore to Avraham. These are the names of the sons of Yishmael listed in the order of their birth. The firstborn of Yishmael was Navayot, followed by Kedar, Adbil, Mivsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedma. These are the sons of Yishmael, and these are their names, according to their settlements and camps, twelve tribal rulers. This is how long Yishmael lived, 137 years. Then he breathed his last, died, and was gathered to his people. Yishmael's sons lived between Havilah and Shur, near Egypt, as you go toward Ashur. He settled near all his kinsmen. So here at the beginning of chapter 24, we find Avraham at a very old age, and he is so blessed by Yehovah God. And we read about this servant. Now this servant is actually Eliezer of Damascus, the very man that he considered uh, before Yitzchak was born uh, to be his heir, and he was considering and brought that up to God. Um, Eliezer was also one of the young men, or the Na'ar, that had gone up toward that mountain when um, Avraham was offering Yitzchak as a sacrifice before God. So here we find Eliezer now 85 years of age, and he had risen to the position of substantial authority in Avraham's entire household. He was now steward, or chief of staff, and he would have inherited Avraham's wealth if Avraham didn't have a son. But when Yitzchak was born, he lost the possible inheritance, but he continued to faithfully serve both his master and the master's heir, Avraham and Yitzchak. And then we see Avraham make a very strange-sounding request. He wants Eliezer to put his hand under his thigh to swear an oath. Now, when we swear an oath today, we might raise our right hand. The word for thigh here is yarek. Now, yarek does mean thigh, but it also means loins. So this Hebrew idiom actually refers to Avraham's genitals. Remember that the sign of the covenant with Yehovah was circumcision, which is located in the male genitals. And somehow this odd action was seen as invoking the power of the presence of God as the one who created the covenant of circumcision and also the one who guaranteed the oath. So what we see Eliezer doing here in some sort of way is that he's actually swearing on the seed of Abraham, which God promised. And this would have been totally fitting here because the oath that he was having him take was to find a wife for Yitzhak. 
to continue that seed and perpetuate that line, so maybe not so odd after all. And we see the two matters of the oath. One, the woman must not be of the Kenani, the Canaanites. She should come from Avram's kinsmen, from his homeland in Mesopotamia. And the second matter of the oath is that Yitzchak must not go to Mesopotamia. Now, the fact that this was written twice in very close proximity in this passage is one of those Hebrew writing styles, and it was very important Avraham was adamant that Yitzchak must not go back to Mesopotamia. But why? Because they were in the land that God had promised them. Avraham did not want to compromise that, just like he didn't want to compromise the future generation by allowing Yitzchak to marry a Canaanite. He would not allow a local pagan girl to possibly lead people away from the true God. It's interesting to note that these words that Avraham gave as instructions to Eliezer are actually his last recorded words in the scriptures. Notice how firm his faith was here. He had no worry because everything was in God's hands and he completely trusted Jehovah to bring about everything that he had promised Avraham. Remember earlier when he was first interacting with God? He wanted to know, well, how am I going to possess the land? Or he lies about Sarah being his wife. And, you know, he, he wants to know how he could have descendants if Sarah was barren and so on, right? But years and years of walking with God brought maturity in his faith. It doesn't happen fast. In verse 9, we see Eliezer swear the oath by placing his hand under the thigh of Avraham. Now, I don't want to brush over this too quickly because Avraham, he was elderly already. He wasn't sure if he'd be able to make the journey and if he'd be able to even meet the future bride of, of Yitzchak. So he's passing on more authority to Eliezer than just simply finding the bride. In the case that Avraham dies, it would be left up to Eliezer to pronounce the blessing and, and accept the bride for Yitzhak. Talk about a burden of responsibility being placed on your shoulders. So Eliezer sets out on his mission and he heads north to Aram Naharaim, northern Mesopotamia. And this is just above the Euphrates River, which is modern day Assyria and Iraq. And he had taken with him 10 of Avraham's camels. It says camels, but camels have two humps. Um, apparently, these were actually one humped dromedaries. And they were meant to be gifts for a betrothal. Now these one-hump dromedaries were specifically from the southern region near the Arabian Peninsula. And where he had traveled to, that's more where the two-humped camels were found. So when Eliezer shows up at the well um, with these one-hump dromedaries, they would have known that he had traveled quite a distance. In verse 12, when the steward begins to pray, most Bible translations will write the word Adonai or Lord. But when Eliezer is referring to God, in the original Hebrew text, it says yud heh vav -he. He's calling God by his personal name, Yehoveh or Yehuah. And his prayer shows not only his trust in God to direct affairs, but also the selflessness with which he serves Avraham. And he wanted to make sure that he's able to fulfill his purpose. And he kind of lays out the terms before God uh, so that he could know for certain that this is the woman that he's supposed to bring back. You know, but he was completely trusting God to reveal that to him. And just as he opened his eyes before he could finish speaking that prayer, right away, Rivka enters. 
Here, this virgin girl is coming to the water well closer to the evening hours when typically the young women and, and the virgins would would come to collect the water. This was just part of the tradition because um, men and women were kept separate much of the time. And this was more a matter of modesty. So here, the modest Rivka comes and offers right away this this water. And not just for him, not just for Eliezer. I mean, that was the typical hospitality that's required, uh, giving water to a thirsty stranger, but not to animals. And by Rivka going above and beyond the call of duty with this unusually kind act, it reveals so much of her servant attitude. And we see Eliezer in verse 21 kind of sitting there and watching and wondering, and he's patient about it. Is this a woman I'm supposed to take as a bride for Yitzhak? Has Yehovah really made my journey successful or not? Once the camels are done drinking, Eliezer presents um, Rivka with a, a gold nose ring and some bracelets to wear. And he asks who she is. And she introduces herself in a very formal way. And this was typical at that time, uh, where you give this abbreviated genealogy. Uh, and this provides a very specific sort of identification. Remember, they didn't have driver's license and health cards and things like that with photo ID. Um, so the specific identification came simply by, well, whose daughter are you, right? And it turns out that she's Yitzchak's cousin-niece, uh, the granddaughter of Avraham's brother, Nehor. Immediately as Eliezer had discovered that he had found Avraham's kinsman, we see him in verse 26, fall to the ground, prostrate himself before God, and worship him at an answered prayer. And in verse 27, we see him acknowledge God's divine guidance. He says, Blessed be Adonai, God of my master Avraham, who had not abandoned his faithful love for my master, because Adonai has guided me to the house of my master's kinsmen. So up to this point of the chapter, when we look at Eliezer's prayer with God, we actually see how it portrays his faith. Let's pause the story right here for a second and take some time to consider for ourselves a few things about our prayer life, and about our own trust in God. How often do you ask God for guidance in anything? Maybe you're preparing for a test. Maybe you're uh, preparing for a new job. Maybe you're trying to make a decision about where to go, who to date, what car to buy. I don't know. I think too often, sometimes when we pray to God, we, we ask, oh, if it's your will, God, and then we kind of leave it in his hands, but we're not really trusting him. It, it's kind of like, well, if it comes my way, then I guess it's God's will. And if it doesn't happen, then it wasn't really God's will. You know, and I think we're a little too flippant. And it doesn't really portray a, a trust or a faith in God when we pray like that. It's almost like gambling. You put a coin in the machine, and if you win the jackpot, you, you win. And if you don't, then, oh, well, it's a lost quarter. Prayer is so much more than putting a coin in a slot machine or rubbing a lamp and hoping a genie pops out and grants us all our wishes or treating God like Santa Claus and sitting on his lap and hope that if we're just good enough, then maybe God will come through and do what we want. Friends, if you want God to guide you, if you trust him enough to guide you in all things, there is an element of submission that's involved there. It means you give up some control and you yield to God's way. 
Now we can learn that from Eliezer. He was patient and he waited. Just he opened his eyes that one time and right away Rivka's there and she's doing everything that he had just prayed about. Now it would be really easy for us to just jump on that and be like, yes, God answered my prayer. That's a sign. That's what I was waiting for. But that's not what Eliezer did here. We can learn from him in this story where he sat and waited and contemplated and and waited for some sort of confirmation that the Lord answered his prayer. And as soon as he gets that confirmation, what does he do? He turns around and he worships God because he got an answer to his prayer. And he acknowledged that it was God that led him, that it was God that directed his steps, that it was God giving divine guidance. What does your prayer life look like? Remember that praising and glorifying God and thanking Him is just as much part of prayer as asking and requesting things. Now let's get back to the passage. So Rivka ends up running back home and telling her mom and all the other ladies there what had just happened. And um, her brother Lavin actually sees this gold nose ring and these gold bracelets on her and wonders, who's this person that gave it to you, right? So he runs out to meet the man that gave her these things. And while meeting a stranger or a guest, it was, you know, it was always a big deal. It was a big occasion back in the day. Uh, The fact that this was a wealthy stranger actually excited Lavin. And Lavin does something where he even invokes the name of Yehovah, God, when he greets Eliezer. We shouldn't be so impressed that he's using uh, Yehovah's name here. Um, He's pretty much taking his name in vain. We find out later that Lavin possesses many gods. So he was just being cordial using the name of Yehovah, the god of Eliezer's master. Lavin seemingly graciously invites Eliezer to stay with their family and to have a meal with them. But first things first, Eliezer was a loyal servant and he was on a mission. So he wanted to know if he was just wasting his time. He states straight away for the record who his master was and what his goal was. Then, so everyone could be certain that the girl's modesty wasn't violated, that she didn't commit anything wrong uh, by speaking with the male, and that all intentions were honorable, Eliezer restated all that was told to him, how he carried out his duty, and how it led him to Rivka. He was demanding immediate acknowledgement of God's leading, and... He wanted full compliance with his request from Betuel and Laban. We could be quite certain that they were not so much anxious to get rid of Rivka as they were ready to receive the customary gifts in exchange for the giving of her hand. I mean, they'd seen the expensive jewelry that Rivka was wearing, and they knew that their gifts would be coming too from a wealthy man. So as they're practicing good customary Eastern hospitality, they say, who are we to go against God's will for our daughter? Here's Rivka right in front of you. Take her as your God has said. And once Eliezer received confirmation from them, he bowed himself to the ground, prostrated himself before Yehovah God. Then in verse 53, by the giving of the dowry, Rivka was now betrothed to Yitzchak. The next morning, protocol and courtesy demanded a messenger to be dismissed by the addressee. So he asks, please release me. Let me go back to my master. And there was some hesitation from the family in releasing Rivka. They wanted her to stay a little bit longer, about 10 days or so. And when they asked her if she would go with him now, she agreed with an immediate departure. 
and this showed her confident acceptance of what was providentially coming about in her life. So she and her nurse, Deborah, joined Eliezer and his company back to Canaan. As they were being sent off, there was a blessing pronounced over Rivka, which fits very nicely with God's promises of many descendants to Avraham through Sarah and Yitzchak. They also wished her offspring to be victorious over their enemies. Now this echoes God's promises of possession of the land of the Canaanite. At the end of chapter 24, God drew Yitzchak from the Negev to where Hagar encountered the Malach Elohim at Bil Hayeroi. When Yitzchak looks up, he sees some camels or dromedaries out in the distance, and Rivka also looks up and sees a man off in the distance, and she asks, hey, who's that guy? And she learns that the man is Yitzchak. So she covers her face with a veil, as this was customary that the bride would veil her face in the presence of her betrothed until the wedding day. After Eliezer reports to Yitzchak all that had occurred, Yitzchak brings Rivka to his mother Sarah's tent and took her, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Yitzchak was 40 years old when he married Rivka. The mother and father of the next generation of the line of promise were now in place. And as Yitzchak and Rivka went into that tent of Sarah, it became theirs. Now generally in this era, men and women would stay separate even after marriage. Um, Husbands and wives, uh, particularly if they were wealthy or the heads of large clans, they would sleep in separate quarters. The fact that this bride and groom entered Sarah's tent was symbolic of Rivka assuming the position of matriarch that Sarah had held until her death. So Sarah's tent had been maintained just for this ceremonial purpose until a bride for Yitzchak had been chosen. The scripture states that Yitzchak found great comfort, finally, in the loss of his mother by marrying Rivka. Obviously, up until Rivka, Sarah had been Isaac's primary contact with the female world. He must have been quite close to his mother. As we look into the first part of Genesis chapter 25, we get a little bit more information about Avraham's family. Now, it starts off that he had um, taken another wife um, whose name was Keturah. Although most Bibles say that Avraham took Keturah as a wife, she wasn't technically a wife as Sarah was legally. See, both Keturah and Hagar were concubines, and they would not have been given a ketubah, uh, a proper marriage contract. Now, they were still well-respected by the clan, and their children, they only received gifts from Avraham, but no rights to the inheritance, which was given fully to Yitzhak. And we're told that Keturah bore Avraham many children, of which six of the sons are listed in this passage. Now these children, she probably had a bunch of daughters as well, but they're just not listed. Um, these children were most likely born prior to Yitzhak being born. And the reason I say this is because Avraham is quite old already by the time he had Yitzhak. Although, you know, there are some biblical scholars that that argue that perhaps he may have um, become very virile after that miraculous um, seed being planted in Yitzhak. But um, tradition holds that Keturah was giving him more children much earlier on. So Avraham, he actually sent these sons of the concubines to other territories. And this is just another example of how dividing and electing 
always leads to separating. Remember that pattern of God? He divides, he elects, and he separates. And these six sons, along with Ishmael, they end up forming what we loosely call the Arab peoples, who populated the Middle East and Northern Africa. Verse 7 brings us to the end of Abraham's life. He lived 175 years. Um, Yishak and Yishmael both buried him in the cave of Machpelah with Sarah. And then we learn that Yitzhak ends up living in Bir Lachairoi after Avraham's death. Verse 12 brings us right into the genealogy of Yishmael. Now it's interesting to note here that Yishmael was a Semite, just as Yitzhak and Avraham were. Now Semites are descendants of Noah's son Shem. So actually the word should be Shemite, not Semite. All the children that Avraham sired were Semites, and that makes the term anti-Semitic such an oxymoron. Technically, the term means against the descendants of Shem. Yet the way that this term has always been used is to declare bigotry against Jewish people. Now, interestingly, it's the Arab peoples who are usually most accused of being anti-Semitic, yet they're Semites themselves. A question that is commonly asked is, was Yishmael cursed? Now, just because Yishmael was rejected by God as a son of promise does not mean that Yishmael was cursed by God. Yishmael was not punished or judged. He simply could, couldn't be the son of promise because Jehovah determined that Yitzhak would be that son. In fact, to sort of make up for Yishmael being dispossessed of the firstborn status that he held until Yitzhak was born, Ishmael was given an almost equal physical inheritance as Yitzhak. It's just that while Avraham would provide Yitzhak's wealth and prosperity, Yehovah would provide for Ishmael's. So, in our age, while the Arab peoples are generally Israel's enemy, they are in no way an accursed people, any more than we are, just because the leaders of our nation have come against Israel by forcing them to divide their land. But it's actually the descendants of Noach's son Ham that are a line of people who did have a curse put on them. And this just isn't the case with the descendants of Shem, both the Arabs or the Hebrews, and of Yafet for that matter. And finally, in verse 17, we're told this is how long Yishmael lived, 137 years. Then he breathed his last, died, and was gathered to his people. So here again, we find no reference to what that gathered to his people means. Was this an afterlife? If so, what did it consist of? We'll never find out in the Torah. And very little detail is given in the whole of the Old Testament. But rather, this is just a nice way of saying that he, he lived out a, a good lifespan and, and he died peacefully, and probably because of natural causes. His quote-unquote people were undoubtedly his descendants as opposed to his ancestors. So he had been divided and separated away from his father. So once again, he was the start of a new line. So being gathered to his kin, I feel certain, refers to his immediate family who would not be known as Arab for several more centuries. And that just about wraps up our study for today. Now I'd like to encourage you to review this lesson and focus in on Eliezer and the sort of faith that he displays. What lessons can we learn from him? 
from his prayer life? What does the heart of a faithful steward look like? Then take some time to reflect on the condition of your own prayer life with God. Now I'd like to leave you with the words of a song that I sing with my kids at bedtime every night. And it's a song that we also sing with our access group. Um, These words are by Kelly Willard, and the song is Make Me a Servant. Let this be your prayer today. Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, Make me a servant, make me a servant, make me a servant today. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any of our studies. As always, it's such a joy to be able to get around God's Word and learn more about His plan and His purposes, and about His amazing love and His promises. And I'm so excited to see where He'll lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the Shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen. I found my